This is Movie Maker Interviews. I'm Eric Stoyer. Today on the show, I talk to Brandon Cronenberg. His new film, Possessor, is a sci-fi horror hybrid about a highly paid assassin who uses brain implant technology to transfer her consciousness into other people. Once she's taken over someone's body and mind, she's able to get close to her target. Andrea Riseborough plays Tazia Voss, the assassin. Christopher Abbott plays Colin Tate, who Voss has taken over in order to perform a hit on the head of a massive data mining company. Possessor premiered at Sundance back in January and was released theatrically earlier this month. It'll be available to watch online in November. What kind of technology were you thinking about or worried about when you were writing this film? Well, it started as an idea where I wanted to uh, write a film about someone who may or may not be an imposter in their own life. And so the technology to begin with didn't need to be rooted in reality at all because it was only intended metaphorically. It's not, it's not like a predictive science fiction film. Uh, it's really meant to be about the ways we create characters and, and narratives uh, in order to operate as human beings. I did end up doing some research into the neuroscience behind it. And, and so there is real scientific roots there, uh, especially in the 50s and 60s, the Spanish doctor Jose Delgado did some very uh, interesting and unsettling experiments, putting wires into people's brains and stimulating parts of their brains electrically and uh, found he could control uh, an alarming range of emotions and, and other behavioral functions. Uh, and in fact, in the film, there's a kind of documentary on the TV at one point where you're watching a bull in a, in a bullfight and it's implanted with this brain implant. And, and that's actually Delgado in the ring with the bull. That, that was sort of a famous experiment that he did. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not important that it's real science, but it is sort of real science. Right. And what about technologies that we're actually living with right now? Are there, are there things that you've been concerned about that you wanted to explore by representing either literally or allegorically in the, in the film? Oh, for sure. I, I mean, although it wasn't about that when I started writing, there were a few developments during the development process. Uh, it was, you know, eight, year, eight years of development. And so first the Snowden leaks happened uh, while I was writing. And so the, this kind of surveillance element crept into it kind of literally for some scenes, uh, literally when, when you're seeing the people look through webcams in order to data mine purchases, that, that was sort of the obvious joke. But also I think the possessions took on a kind of, they became a bit of a metaphor for surveillance, you know, instead of, instead of being, uh, instead of having someone turn on your web, your webcam or your uh, computer mic, uh, they're actually in your body experiencing the most intimate details of your life through your own nerve endings and, or just as terrifying being in the body of someone close to you. And, and you're confessing your darkest secrets to essentially a full body biological surveillance camera. Later on, uh, I think what became more relevant than that, certainly what is more relevant now is I think the influence of technology on people's beliefs and behaviors, you know, for instance, the Russian influence on the U S elections, I think we're all kind of becoming hyper aware right now of the ways that being in this kind of online society influences what we think and, and how we behave. And we're only really starting to see the repercussions of that. I think that will be a, a major a major problem for us and will sort of define this this next era of, of human society. 
there's this uh, related problem where the handful of technology companies that control uh, so much of the distribution of communication that happens online, their business models incentivize them to be building profiles constantly of, of, of people, of users, to then use that information to sell products to, to market to. Um, you satirize that a little bit in the film, of course. Um, how much is this something that you've been thinking about? I, I, I notice you're not on social media or you're not active on social media. Sure. I mean, it's not the only, it's not the only problem because when you're talking about election interference, it's less mundane <laughs> than, than what I had in mind. Um, but when you look at, say, the way Google operates with email or, or this kind of, you know, geo-tracking and, and advertising, uh, we're exposed to a constant stream of information and that information is increasingly tailored to us in very specific ways. And we're dealing with uh, a loss of privacy through technology that in many ways is rooted in the economy and, and these really mundane money matters. Uh, but recently, I, I think we're seeing the, the kind of bigger political moves that, that can be made that way. What do you think of the film being labeled as a as a horror film? Is that a genre that you feel suits it? It it has certainly has horrifying images and elements, but it doesn't have the beats necessarily of a contemporary horror film. Is that is that a label you embrace? I, I would definitely call it a horror movie. I think there are limits to those categories. You know, nothing. How do you define horror? I, I don't know. It's, it's very difficult, especially I think if you're plugged into horror as a genre and especially fans who are well-versed in, in the history of the genre, what horror can be is, is much more broad. These days you have mainstream horror and it, it tends to follow that kind of like Blumhouse or, or Conjuring Universe uh, formula a lot of jump scares you know people associate horror with being startled essentially and, and with and with these kinds of overt fear responses but i think traditionally or at least over the, the history of the genre it's it's often not about that it's there are, there are uh, more let's say nuanced explorations of, of fear and dread and anxiety and you know some of it is uh, explicitly violent and grotesque and some of it really isn't you know some of the sort of older ghost stories are, are you know seeping uh, in dread but also things aren't jumping out at you and startling you there's there's no gore it's it's very much uh, this it's where it lands on the emotional spectrum rather than uh, any one concrete thing that you can point to so you know it, it's sort of a subjective and, and limited thing ultimately I, I think it's horror and, and I think a lot of horror fans would consider it that, but I understand why people who are uh, more plugged into the mainstream horror might not respond to it that way. There's some really extreme violence in the movie. Where do you find your impulse comes from to want to show the most provocative uh, images on screen that you can conjure up? I mean, there, there were sort of two, two versions of that in the film. One is the violence. The violence to me in Possessor is incredibly narrative because so much of the story is rooted in uh, Voss's relationship with violence, her relationship with these experiences and, and memories and her work. And so to me, that had to be explicit uh, and also track with her psychology. Sometimes it's much more observational and brutal. Sometimes it's much more stylized and, and almost fetishistic as she's remembering and, and we're sort of tracking her uh, in those moments, but also uh, her memories of them afterwards. Uh, the other elements are the kind of, I guess, more hallucinatory 
uh, nightmarish sequences. And a lot of that was working to try to create visuals for something that is, is kind of abstract. You know, how do you, how do you visually in a satisfying way and in a way that's going to strike people on a visceral level, communicate that someone is jumping into the body of someone else or, or that the, those consciousnesses are in uh, one body sort of struggling for control and merging with each other. There's no obvious way to do it. So you have to, in my mind, you have to find something kind of impressionistic that uh, deals in the anxiety of that experience and kind of feels right, even though it, it, there's no, uh, direct translation to film. Yeah, those were some of my favorite images in the film, especially the body melting away. That reminded me of something you maybe would see at an after midnight animation festival in the 90s, not not because it looked outdated, but because it had this very particular aesthetic to it, kind of grim, but also beautiful and both real and totally surreal at the same time. How'd you uh, achieve that effect? Uh, it was all practical. I mean, that whole sequence is practical effects. Um, on the makeup effects side, uh, a, a lot of the melting is wax and, and just like very well-crafted, well-painted uh, wax busts and, and uh, hands. That was all Dan Martin's work. Uh, Dan allowed us to do a lot of stuff practically that, that I think kind of looks almost digital because it's a little alarmingly real, but it's really just because they're so well-painted and, and well-executed. On the camera effects side, Kareem Hussein, my cinematographer and, and longtime collaborator at this point, we, we've spent a lot of time working together on music videos and, uh, and shorts, and he did antiviral. And so we spent over the course of really eight years of development coming up with this bank of camera tricks, playing with gels and, and video feedback and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and then also my editor, Matt Hannum, was very much involved in uh, the the language of how those scenes worked. You know, we, we, he had a lot of influence on uh, the cutting and, and the rhythms of that sequence. Let's go back to the conversation we were having a moment ago about the violence in the film. So much of the writing that I've seen about Possessor is very much focused on how grisly some of the scenes are. Has that been surprising to you to see that focus? Uh, is it something that bothers you? Do you like it? You know, in, in a way, it's sort of neither here nor there. Um, I knew it would be part of it because it's a violent film. Some of the reactions to it have been a little bit more extreme than I was expecting. And, and I think that could be partly because of the practical effects. I, I think more and more there's this shift towards uh, CGI for these violent sequences, like uh, digital squibs and, and blade extensions. Um, that really frees you up from a choreography uh, standpoint. It, when you're doing fights, you can have these long unbroken scenes, but I think there's something less tactile about them because you, you know, liquid is very hard to create perfectly digitally. Blood is hard to create, you know, the skin texture. So I, I'm not exactly sure why, obviously it's an explicit film, but I think the, the method behind it is having a, a greater impact than it might've otherwise. Did you also use some VFX in the film? There were some, I mean, in the hallucinatory sequences, those were entirely practical. For the violence, there was a little bit of VFX cleanup, basically, and a couple of small blade extensions and bloodline removals. It was uh, touched up slightly, but it was very rooted in, in practical effects. Honestly, the, the VFX were more for 
uh, a couple of instances of set enhancement. Um, there's this great company milk that we worked with that did the, uh, you know, there are a couple of VFX signs and, and kind of moving background images and, uh, and the VR, the VR office, obviously they created for us. For a good chunk of the film, Christopher Abbott plays Voss, the character that Andrea Riseborough's character as an actor playing her performing a version of him. It's a pretty complicated dynamic. Uh, how did you work with them to make sure that you you all nailed that? To begin with, I was a bit worried about how we were going to approach that. And, and there was kind of a rabbit hole we could have gone down in terms of just the the formal rules of how it would work. So in, in an early conversation with them, I was, I was trying to figure out how they would like to do it. Um, did, did they want to be on set for each other's scenes? Because they, they don't have too many scenes actually together, but um, did they want to watch each other? Did one of them want to take the lead in a sense uh, and the other one mimic that version of the character? In practice, it was fairly organic. I mean, I had my own ideas about how the performances would overlap to begin with, and they had their ideas that, that they shared with me, and we sort of integrated them. My understanding is they were in touch with each other behind the scenes uh, to check in about, you know, what Voss would do in a particular scenario. So, so they were talking and then individually uh, we were working it out as we were blocking on a kind of scene by scene uh, level. So it was, yeah, it was, it was fairly organic and, and collaborative actually and, and less hard than you would expect. I think because they're both fantastic actors and, and were bringing so much of their own ideas into it. The film, uh, particularly in some parts, has a, a very specific and striking color palette that, that make it feel very uh, psychedelic, I guess. And uh, did, did you light things flat and then go back in and um, add that look in post or was it uh, all done in camera? Uh, it was all pretty much all in camera. I mean, Kareem likes to light uh, on the set and I, I like that too. I, I think it has a better look to it. Um, all of the gels, all of the, the sort of, you know, the red with the yellow that was all done in camera with um, red gels looped over the lens. And then me actually a lot of the time standing next to the lens with a flashlight with a yellow gel kind of bouncing it off um, <laughs> between the red gel and, and the lens and, and sort of playing with flares as we were shooting. So, yeah, I mean, there was obviously the usual kind of color grading stuff that you do but it was pretty straight. We, it, the look didn't really change in post. Were you able to watch the film with an audience uh, before the pandemic made that a thing that's not very easy to do? At Sundance, we, we got really lucky actually because Sundance was kind of the last real festival of the big festivals operating in, in a kind of an in-person, you know, normal way. Do you think this is a good time for independent film or creative or different film Obviously, for the last many years, there's been all this talk about TV being the, the new auteur's medium. And then the complement to that has seemed to be that feature-length films, the kind that are in theaters or that people are really talking about, that they are really pushed more and more in the direction of needing to be blockbusters. Uh, but along with that, there's all these new opportunities for distribution, and with everything happening in the world, people staying home to watch more stuff, how do you think films like yours will, will fit into that picture? 
Uh, do you mean specifically the pandemic or just the last few years? Okay. Yeah, I, I meant the question more generally, but I, I realized as I was asking it that I really was sort of thinking about the pandemic because I'm thinking about the pandemic constantly. So, right. so let me ask it that way. Uh, how do you think the pandemic will affect the future of independent and adventurous filmmaking? Well, actually, you know what? Let's let's answer both. Let's answer both questions because they're both good questions. And I, I think, uh, in terms of independent film and and what's going on in that scene right now, it, it is interesting because on the one hand, there is this push towards bigger and bigger blockbusters, and, and it's certainly for theatrical films. I mean, they're so dominated by you know everything owned by Marvel right now, for instance. It's tempting to despair if you like you know more arty indie stuff and and say well that's movies right now but on the other hand there's a lot of really good indie stuff being made you know the technology is cheaper than ever so you can really do a lot with not a lot of money and you know even more importantly it's very easy to get your film seen because of digital distribution because of streaming i mean netflix uh, and companies streaming companies will buy up indie films uh just to you know, essentially continue engaging in this like content arms race, uh, but also just through iTunes or even, you know, self-published films. It's, it's very easy to get your stuff out there. Getting it noticed, always a, a difficult thing when, when there's so much content out there available to people, but to actually make an independent film and uh, get it to people, I think is easier now than it was you know, a couple of decades ago, we haven't returned to say the seventies or, or those, you know, or the sixties where you're, those kinds of films would be the, the big theatrical hits. You know, it's, it's not like art films are, are kind of back in the mainstream, but I think for people who want that version of filmmaking, there's a lot of it being made and a lot of it uh, is easy to find in terms of the pandemic, you know, honestly, it, it probably, uh, it probably has helped indie films because, people are afraid to release the blockbusters right now that a lot of them are just sort of pushing to next year. And so at the same time, everyone, as everyone is, is eating up all of the content on the streaming services and, and are desperate for new films, there's this uh, kind of vacuum that I think indie films are being sucked into and they're probably more visible and more widely watched than they would have been otherwise this year. Is there anything you've seen recently that you really, really loved? Uh, Capone. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I really liked it. I'm definitely interested in it. I I, I didn't see it because I, I just didn't hear anyone say anything good about it. I think it, yeah. I think it was unfairly <laughs> unfairly shot on. I think I think that was like some good good fi- controversial take. Is that's actually a good film and you should check it out. <laughs> right on. We love a good controversial take. Uh, back to Possessor. Um, Voss is a female character for much of the movie being played by a male actor, but it's a female character that we're seeing all of the action in the movie through the eyes of. Is that a way of telling the story that you had in mind from the start? Actually, a very, very early version of the script had Voss be a man. Um, the thing is, so the, I mean, the, the film was rooted in my you know kind of own trivial experiences with identity and being on the road with antiviral, my first feature for, for a long time. And um, when the first time you do that, having to build a public persona and having this weird alternate self that you're performing. And, and so I wanted to kind of explore 
that side of human behavior, how we create characters and, and, and narratives in order to operate. And so because it was just coming from my own experience initially before I, I kind of built up this, this sci-fi thriller plot, I kind of defaulted to a male character. Then I realized it would be way more interesting if she were a woman. First of all, I'd just done a very male character with antiviral. Also, I think we've all sort of seen a lot of movies and, and TV where the husband and, and father can't relate to his family because of experiences on the job, you know, whether it's the Hurt Locker or any number of uh, TV, you know, cop shows, that, that's sort of a cliche at this point. So I thought it was more interesting for that to be the, the wife and mother character who, who was dissociating. And then, of course, the obvious thing, which should have been apparent from the start, which is this, it's way more interesting to explore gender and, and have that contrast in, in body types. Um, so it wasn't there from the start, but it was a change that was made very early on for, uh, I think, obvious reasons. Even the the grisly stuff in the film has a has a, a beauty in the way that it's portrayed, and and the film overall has a, a a unique look. Were there specific visual references you were pulling from or inspired by, or or is it is the style more just an amalgamation of things that you're interested in and that you like? Honestly, more of an amalgamation. I mean, I, I use I do make a kind of lookbook early on to help sell the thing because I think it really helps to have visuals. But I mean, the truth is you, you kind of end up abandoning that early on because it, it develops through the process of making it. That's, that's a good sales tool and, and sort of is a good, a good way to indicate where your head is at very early on, but so much of it changes, or at least for me, so much of it changes because I really like to collaborate. I really like to spend, you know, again, years with, with Kareem in his living room, just messing with camera tricks and, and creating this bank of, of aesthetic uh, ideas. Well, what were some of the specific things you were consuming while you were developing this? In that development process, I tend to watch a lot of movies with some of my close team, like Kareem or like Rob Cotterell. You know, we watched a lot of stuff. And, and some of it, I think, is more obviously related. For instance, we watched opera a fair bit. And, and part of the motivation for that was the stylized violence. It has a lot of stabbing in it. What was the technique behind that? But the sort of slow motion, dreamlike, detailed, uh, fetishistic uh, way that that violence is uh, presented, you know, or uh, Clouseau's Inferno, the unfinished film, you know, it's an encyclopedia of inventive practical camera tricks. So it, that kind of stuff is, is useful uh, to at least look at. I mean, they've been, that, it's also been mined very thoroughly, so you don't want to lean on it too heavily, but um but it's, it's inspiring. Uh, and then films that are kind of less obvious, like uh, we watched The Offense a lot, the, the Sean Connery film, which uh, we were finding visually very interesting, the, the ways that people uh, are filmed speaking in rooms and sort of the dreamlike uh, imagery at the start before it becomes more of a play and just you know some of the production design elements and, and that kind of thing. So there's usually a process of consuming a lot of films more as a group and for me personally that kind of gets mashed together into a sort of loaf that I keep in the back of my head and kind of gnaw on as, a, as I'm working but I'm not trying to reference specific films within my work. Are you the kind of filmmaker that shoots a lot of stuff you don't end up using or uh, is everything pretty much on screen? So I, you know kind of somewhere in the middle I mean certainly especially working on this 
indie level, you don't have time to shoot tons of stuff and then abandon it. So I think you have to go in with a pretty clear idea. But at the same time, you know, I try not to avoid being brutal in, in editing. And this was my second film with Matt uh, Hannum, but we're pretty close. And uh, it was interesting working together again because we could kind of cut through that initial phase of being gentle with the film and just you know our, our first cut together we were saying okay the scene doesn't work just get rid of the scene like you, let's just make some kind of uh broad structural changes to a degree i mean the, the narrative didn't allow for a massive reorganization but you know let's throw out let's throw out the scene entirely because it's not working and, and see what that does brandon cronenberg Thanks for joining us. Uh, Possessor is out now, and I can't wait for more people I know to see it so I can talk about it with them, because I can't get it out of my head. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, you too. Hey, thanks for listening to Movie Maker Interviews. Uh, You can check us out online at moviemaker.com, where we publish stories every day about films, filmmaking, and filmmakers. That's a good place to subscribe to Movie Maker's print magazine, too. We're on social media. At Movie Maker Mag is the handle. And, of course, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And we always appreciate when you do that. And we will be back soon with another episode of Movie Maker Interviews. And we hope you will be there to join us. Until then, take care of yourselves.